following program is intended for immature audiences only. Don't think, just listen. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill and welcome to Online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV Channel 77 and also at Online with Bill Alexander.com. Hope everything's going well for you on this Thursday night. Busy week this week. Monday night we had Shelly Boards from WPXI and then we had Tuesday night we had uh, from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Francois Clemens. And it was an, an enjoyable week so far. And I, I have to correct myself because I assumed <laughs> that who I was talking tonight was a gentleman. Maybe I was being sexist and didn't realize it. But we are speaking to a, uh, a lady this evening by the name of VR Craft. VR, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. Glad to be on the show. I'm glad to have you. So I've been talking about the book Fail to the Chief for about the last week to my audience, and I kept telling that that this gentleman who wrote the book, I really enjoyed it and everything else, and then I find out tonight, you're not a guy. And that's true, I'm not. <laughs> well, I was I, 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 I kinda hope you realize that you're not. But anyhow, so why are you writing on why are you making people assume that you are a, a, a gentleman instead of a, a woman writing the book? I don't know. Why do people just automatically assume a book is written by a man if the, the author just uses their first initial? Uh, very good. That that you're right. It is sexist. I did not. You know what? I I fell into that trap, and I apologize for that, because I assumed because I don't know very many women that use their initials. I know a lot of guys that do. Um, and when I was in college, I used the initials B E when I was in college. But now I understand uh, where you're coming from on this, because it does give this air of mystery. Um, when you write a book and you use your initials, because really people can't distinguish who you are just by those letters. That's true. Of course, you know, I'm on social media. People can look me up, follow me on Twitter, Facebook. I have two blogs, so people people can find me and find out more about me. Now, another thing that I'm, I'm, I'm noticing just by listening to you, you sound like you're very young. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I am a millennial. Is that tell you anything about my age <laughs> yes it does <laughs> i don't know how old millennials are they look at teenagers and they think they're millennials okay um, but millennials are anywhere from early 20s to late 30s now so so how long have you been writing uh i have been writing since i was a kid um i started writing professionally um Actually, uh, when I was nine years old, I wrote a column for the local paper. I didn't get paid anything. My okay. parents were real big on exposure, um, which never uh, paid anything. And it turns out you can't pay your bills with exposure. Exactly uh, right. And, I, um, and then I stopped writing for a while. You know, I, I went to college. And uh, uh, the first time I went to college, I majored in broadcast journalism. Um, I worked for a TV station for about five years. Uh, journalism is 
not a good career if you want to be able to pay your bills, if I'm honest. Um, it's interesting, but it, it doesn't pay very well, especially in a small market. I got a second degree in advertising and public relations. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, around that time I started thinking about writing a book, and so I've been uh, working on writing novels for about 10 years now. Um, my first book, Stupid Humans, uh, was published in 2016. And uh, then earlier this year, um, Sales of the Chief came out. So where do you get your ideas for the, the two books, Stupid Humans and also Fail to the Chief? Well, I get a lot of ideas um, for books and also short stories uh, when I'm running. I'm a runner and I run every morning on the treadmill. And so I got ideas for both of those books at uh, very different times, years apart. Um, for Stupid Humans, I was inspired because earlier in the day I had been at work and I was working in retail at that time. Okay. Uh, because like a lot of millennials, you know, my college degree is in doesn't really worth anything, and I, you know, I can't get a real job with it. At that point, I had uh, two college degrees, and I'm still working in retail because that was the only job I could get. Um, and one day, I had, you know, you meet the craziest customers when you work in, in retail. And I had a customer just so stupid. You know, she had a six-pack of baker's boxes, and she pointed out and she said, "Does this mean there's six in there?" And I was like, "Is there some other thing in a six-pack that I don't know of?" And it got me to thinking, you know, as I went about my day, you know, about taking all the stupid people and just putting them on their own planet somewhere. Okay. And then I thinking that, you know, logistically, there are so many more stupid people in the world today. It would be easier if we just let them have Earth and have the intelligent people move to another planet. And that was where I came up with the world building for stupid humans. Okay. So, so think about, actually, I think we do have places for stupid humans on Earth, and it's called Walmart. But anyhow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of that site. Because I, I, can, I can honestly relate. I understand what you're talking about, because I've seen some recently that it, it's amazing they're able to get out of the house and actually keep on uh, 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 living a somewhat productive life, and yet... <laughs> With stuff they do is just amazing. Now, another thing, now I, I hate to tell you this, just to give you a little background on me. I also have a degree in broadcast communications, worked radio for years, and then I went back and got my master's in education, and I now teach it on a high school level. So I also understand that with the younger generation, that some of them aren't the brightest people in the world either. That's true, yeah. I've, I've met uh, the not-so-bright people of all ages. <laughs> so do you enjoy writing? You know, when you work in retail, you meet, um, I feel like, especially at the holidays, every dumb person or person with issues just comes out and yells at a cashier. That's right. like a rule or something. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are now shopping online because they don't have to oh, deal yeah. with the stupid people that are out there on a daily basis. Uh, exactly, yeah. Or the people who are just angry and want to yell at a cashier. You know, I had so much of that. Just, you know, so yeah. many people who think your fault that you're sold out of something. Like, you intentionally sold the last one just to ruin their day, right? <laughs> exactly right. So are you are you still working retail? Or are you working, um, are you just focusing on your writing or how are you splitting your time up now? Uh, I no longer have to work in retail. Because well, that's... in 2014, the stores were closed, and I was so happy. I cannot tell you how happy I was. 
not that I lost my job because I did need the money. That was the whole reason that I worked in that horrible place for so long. Right. But I was just really no longer had to go work there. Um, and after that, I did some temp jobs. I worked um, at the college where I got both degrees. Everyone in that office, I worked in the financial aid call center. Everyone in that office had a degree from that university, and we were all sitting there working for $10 an hour because that was how much our degree was worth. And we would take calls from people who were getting in debt up to their eyeballs, like right. $50,000, $100,000, which also get a degree that might very well not be worth anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that you know that was tough. Um, and then I finally got a job that paid like I was a college graduate and not a kindergarten dropout. And that lasted six months before um, basically I was fired and replaced with an intern. So that uh, that gave me an opportunity to finish writing um, Sales of the Chief, though, because then I had some time on my hands. So I said, you know what, I'll just I'll, I'll finish writing my novel. Because um, I had had the idea for Sales of the Chief, um, like in January of that year. Uh, that was another time that I was running on the treadmill and... My parents are big fans of Fox News. They'd left the TV on with the sound off. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it, and I was thinking about how an election is so much like a reality show. Because, yes. you know, places are kind of followed around 24-7 in the same way that people on reality shows are followed around 24-7. You have the constant coverage. You know, on reality shows, you have judges who say, well, that was a little pissy and things like that. Um, but on, on you know, a network like Fox News, you have the pundits criticizing everything that, you know, a candidate does, some more than others, and depending on which station you watch, you know, some more than others. Uh, but it, it is a lot like a reality show in that way. So I just started thinking, you know, what if we just made it a reality show, the election, you know, people could vote from their couches. Think how many more people would vote if they could just vote right from their couch the way that you do for a show like American Idol, Right. right? Oh, I, I, I agree with you totally. I think it's an excellent idea. And when I started reading the book, like you said, it was published in 2018. And I was reading the book and I'm going, did when it was written, was it written with the president we currently have in mind? Or was it written prior to the 2016 election? Because if it was written prior to the 2016 election, the individual that wrote this actually was forecasting what we were going to see in the next four years, or at least the next two years, with the reality TV president that we have right now. You know, that's very true. Um, I think I got the book to my editor around April or May of 2016. Um, so, yeah, I had, I had finished writing it before the election. And there were certainly things that, you know, I wish I'd had the chance to make fun of, like all the stuff with Russia um, and, you know, election hacking and things like that. Um, I, I would have wanted to include in the book, but, you know, I, I didn't have a chance to because I had already finished writing it. Well, now you have to write a sequel just so you can throw that in there. I could do that. I'm, I'm still writing. So I, I could definitely do that. Because I think you could actually do it now and actually have it as the candidate that wins now has a criminal background that no one knew about and the background is now coming out and it's now being played in front of the american public and you have the the reality or the uh, tv networks that are that are are going after day in and day out there's no no politics or no no policy getting solved it's all talking about the criminals within the cabinet or within the presidency 
spoil not to spoil the book for you, but if you read the ending of the book, I I did kind of leave some openings where uh, a sequel like that could certainly happen. So. <laughs> Uh, maybe yeah, I, I think it'd be a great idea. So what? So the the uh, stupid humans, you based it in. I, I don't want to say in fact, but I mean it was inspired by what you were doing in the daily life. Fail to the chief was inspired by what you were watching on TV per se. So when you come up with an idea, is it dealing with what you see or are exposed to in your daily life, or is it just an idea that you come up with? It's usually inspired by something that I'm turning over in my head in okay. my daily life. Um, kind of like, you know, I was inspired by thinking about how reality shows are like elections. And I'll have ideas like, what if this happened and what if that happened? And, you know, that's the best thing for a writer to be constantly thinking about what if, because that gives you ideas for stories. Now, um, when you, the, the, the two, two genre, the, the two books you wrote, what genre do you consider them being? Um, I mean, I don't. It's a human book because um, it's set in in the future, of, okay. about two hundred years. Which I don't give a specific date for it, um, and it presupposes kind of uh, an alternate history um, where some intelligent humans uh, left Earth in our past and you know moved to a different solar system. They traveled through a wormhole and they started this whole new life without the stupid humans. Okay, um, and then a couple hundred. In the future, we go through the wormhole and we find them, and they're forced to deal with us again. And they're not terribly happy about that. Uh, and being human, of course, you know it's it's not too long before um, we we start a conflict with them, and so that's where we start the story. Okay. Um, in the middle of this conflict, and then "Fail to the Chief" is a, a political satire. Okay. And a comedy. Uh, it, it's set in our world. It's a world that's slightly different, where we elect the president by a reality show which is really not all that different than what we do anyway. So. Right, yeah. So which which type do you like writing better, the political satire or the uh, futuristic sci-fi? You know, I like both, and there are, there are things that are the same about both of them. In, in writing both books, I assume things that aren't, you know, really true about the world, like in Fail to the Chief, although it's, it's basically our world in terms of technology um, and things like that. It's the same as our world. But I also assumed a world where we have a reality show to elect the president instead of our current electoral disaster, which is what we have now. And in um, Stupid Humans, I was able to go a little farther with that and imagine, you know, a future where there are all different kinds of technology, um, where we have space travel and how those things work. I would say that writing science fiction is a little more complicated um, because you do have to think about, you know, futuristic things and um how things might work in a science fiction setting. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that you can actually go out tomorrow and test. I don't think anyone's going to find a wormhole and see if they could actually travel through it. Okay. But you want it to be as scientifically plausible as possible. So I just spend a lot of time reading about wormholes um, and faster than light travel and things like that. Now, with Fail to the Chief, um, the whole idea is, is it is a reality program very similar to what you would say I would say Survivor is that you have a group of people and instead of them being stuck on an island, these are stuck in a makeshift uh, a White House that is a, a full set with cameras running 24-7 everywhere in the building that, that there's so many hours that are on TV live, but yet you can go to a website and actually see it. So in other ways, it's a little bit like Big Brother 
and the Big Brother house. And the main character who is the host of the program, Brian, made a choice to do hard-hitting journalism or to be a game show host. And he went for the easy money to become the game show host. Because of what your back, because of what your background is, I mean, would you go the game show route instead of being a journalist like you said you weren't making any money doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as much as I love journalism and the search for truth, you know, it it really sucks to be living with your parents as an adult. Right. Um, You know, and I I work at at home now. I'm a freelance writer. Um, I write all kinds of different things um, for different clients. It's really hard to get work done when your parents are constantly banging on the door and asking (laughs) how to fix their phone. (laughs) That's true. I never thought of that. in the living room, like I said, my parents like to watch Fox News and during the day my dad will just have it blaring and you know, I'll be trying to interview someone and I, you know, I have some idiots from Fox News yelling in the next room. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think I would sell out and take the game show job and I think most millennials would probably agree with me. So the, the, the characters that you have in Fail to the Chief, did you base them on anybody or like you said, what you were seeing on the cable news channels? Um, there, there are definitely candidates who, um, there are characters in the book who seem a lot like people who ran for president in 2016. Okay. Um, and I was writing this book, like I said, um, back when there were still like dozens of people running for president. So I had like 10 contestants in the book and, um, a lot of those, you know, they weren't maybe strictly based on anyone, but you know, there is a, a guy whose last name is Chump and you can yes. just guess at what inspired that. Uh, but there are other characters who are maybe reminiscent of people who were running, you know, in 2016. So I get inspiration from that. I know them is obviously specifically based on anyone because clearly it's a work of fiction. And, uh, you know, any uh, resemblance to real people is strictly a coincidence. Um, but definitely I get inspiration from, you know, real people and real things that happen to me in real life. How- there's a scene in Chief. Um, where one of the candidates, you know, I, I thought about for this reality show, the things that I would, I've always wanted to see a candidate do. Um, and there's one scene where all the candidates find out that they have to go out and work a real job. Yes. And not like, you know, they go to a soup kitchen and their assistants tell them everything to do and they're not really doing anything themselves. They're just gripping and grinning and acting like it, right? We've all seen that kind right. of photo op situation. But they're, they're going to be in a situation where they don't have an assistant helping them, telling them what to do. They're totally on their own, and they have to do, like, a normal person's job. And so we have this one candidate who has to go and work in a fast food restaurant. And uh, I was really proud of that thing because it gave me a chance to explore some of the things that a lot of people my age have to deal with. With You know, you graduate from college. You, you can't get the kind of job that you went to college to get. You're working three retail jobs, and you still can't make ends meet. Um, and I was able to do that in a scene that involved, you know, a little kid throwing ketchup on a politician. So right. I really enjoyed seeing that scene. <laughs> so what's funny about this is because when the 2016 election was going on, I was saying basically the same thing, that I want to see one of these candidates actually mow their own lawn and take out right? their garbage. Yeah. And I don't want to see this, what we were seeing, because, again, these weren't real people. These were people that had people doing stuff for them and they were just sitting back yep. take the benefit of it i like the idea of of throwing these candidates into 
real work situations. Put them in, a, put one of them in a, a, a fourth grade classroom at an inner city school, and let's see how they handle that. Or again, like McDonald's, or put them on an assembly line and say, "Hey, you got to get so much work done. If not, you don't receive that paycheck at the end of the week. And not only don't you receive the paycheck, you don't, you're not able to pay rent. So how are you going to do that?" And put them exactly. in that situation. I think that's a wonderful idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I had uh, candidates doing all different jobs in the book. I had uh, one guy who had, you know, he was a politician from Iowa, and he, he was constantly talking about how he supported the pig farmers. So yes. I had him actually go and work with pigs in, on a farm and see, you know, how hard that is and ends up all in the mud. And, you know, obviously he doesn't know anything about it, but he's always talking about how he cares about these people. I had someone working in a coffee shop. You know, I had... Um, uh, someone working in a, a natural food store, um, just different places that, you know, people who have real jobs actually have to work at. Um, I did have one candidate go to a daycare and, you know, end up uh, trying to teach little children. That didn't work out well for him. But, yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to see a reality show where we make every presidential candidate actually go out and work a real job. The other thing I thought was interesting, too, is whenever they had to, they had to uh, balance the budget, um, and yeah. being able to do that and actually having to work together. And of course there were ones that didn't want to do anything. And you mentioned about the pig farmer who was only worried about the farm subsidy. We had another one worried about Christmas decorations and then just going on and on. And again, things that average people think about, but politicians don't. Right. And yeah, you know, it is, it is interesting to think about that. And also, um, you know, there's, in that scene, we had suggestions from the audience, and uh, audience members would, you know, point out things that the government just honestly wastes money on, like um, the amount of money that the White House spends on flowers in a year. I, yes. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it was six figures. And in fact, those numbers in the book were all based on real things that I looked up what the federal government wastes money on. Uh, apparently, they, they spent money on a study to see the effects of cocaine on the sex drive of ducks or rats or something ridiculous like that. And, uh, you know, it, it would really be interesting to watch politicians have to balance the budget with someone pointing out all the things that they waste money on. It, and it, ultimately, someone suggests that they get rid of their own salaries, which is one of the biggest wastes of money, honestly, because most people in Congress are independently wealthy and don't really need the money that we pay them. Exactly. The, the What you're talking about here, we've already cut the funding for White House holiday decorations, a badminton court for prisoners at Guantanamo, and studying the effects of cocaine on the sex drive of Japanese quail. Quail, that's what it was. <laughs> I was thinking duck. And there's nothing left but yeah, the farm <laughs> subsidy to cut. I those are all things that the federal government has wasted money on or based on things. I think it may have been a tennis court, not a badminton court. I did change them up a little. Uh, but those are all real things that our government has wasted money on. <laughs> Which I thought was really interesting. I'm reading that and going, yeah, I believe they would do that too. But again, it's just very interesting that, that, that the spin on the book. Now, the one thing I would, I think this would great, make a great uh, Netflix movie or a miniseries or whatever, because I think a lot of people could get behind it and actually watch it and could cast a few people in these, in these roles that would be able to do them justice on TV. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it would make a great Netflix series too. 
if Netflix wants to make me an offer, that'd be great. <laughs> so how long did it take you to write this book? Because you said you started um, you started in 2015 and you finished it up right before the election. So how long did it actually take? Well, I got the idea in late 2015, early 2016, probably around New Year's, I think, is when I had that idea. Okay. And I started writing it in early January. Um, and, I, you know, I was going at a pretty sedate pace until I got fired. I remember that was February 12th. I remember the date because it was the Friday before my birthday. My birthday is February 14th. So I got fired on the Friday before my birthday. Happy birthday to me. Um <laughs> And then I thought, you know, I have some time on my hands, so I might as well just finish writing this book. So I did. And do we have? Do you have another book coming out soon? Because you have the two. Is there anything coming out that that is a total jo- different genre, or are you just mulling over ideas right now? No, my next book out is going to be um, a sequel to Stupid Humans. It's okay. actually going to be a series. Um, so Stupid Humans is going to be the first book. Uh, the second book, which is uh, tentatively titled Stupider Humans, uh, will hopefully be out later this year. And that's going to be a sequel to the Stupid Humans book. And that, that'll that be a series that'll probably have several more books in it. I wanted to write uh, more books in that world. Um, and like I said, I, I'm considering writing a, a sequel to Sales of the Chief um, that probably won't be out that, this year, but hopefully sometime in the future I will write a sequel to that book too make it by 2020 and you'll be in good shape <laughs> that would be nice yeah absolutely <laughs> probably some very interesting things happening in 2020 um so you you said you have a blog where's your blog at i have two blogs um the one i blog on the most is shareable sarcasm.wordpress.com and that's the one where i post a lot of um you know random stuff my thoughts on things. Uh, I post some satire on there. I sometimes write um, onion-esque articles about uh, politics, political satire. Um, I'd love to write for the Onion, but they don't take unsolicited uh, submissions from people. Doesn't that suck? Because I really, I, I think I could write for the Onion. Oh, I didn't um, realize the stuff that. that. The Onion will not consider is on my blog. So, uh, shareable sarcasm dot uh, wordpress dot com. And I have another blog called the aircraft author dot wordpress.com. And that one's more for my science fiction stuff. I have a lot of uh, science fiction short stories on there. If you want to go up there and read them, they're all on there for free. Um, and, and do you like, do you like writing for a blog or do, would you rather write novels? You know, I like doing both. Um, blogs are good for just short pieces that you uh, want to write about a current event. Um, but sometimes I will get inspired by my blog post to, um, to write something longer, like a novel. It is nice to write something short because, you know, you can finish that in a day, whereas a novel takes days, weeks, months. Uh, Stupid Humans I started writing in November of 2012 for NaNoWriMo, and um, that's national novel, national novel writing in a month. Um, for those who don't know, we're supposed to write a novel in a month. Yes. I thought I was that one in a month and you know i finished it in november of 2014 so technically i wrote it all in the month of november um and the two years in between okay that makes uh, sense but yeah that it took a long time that was a long book i think the published version was 140,000 words oh wow. uh, my first draft was like 75,000. so i'm on your shareable sarcasm site right now and 
you <laughs> you lean yourself towards political satire, do you not? I do, yeah, but I also write articles about current events um, and current politicians because as well. I think it's about a, a thing that happened a few weeks ago where, um, you know, a manager in Australia said that millennials don't want to work for free. Well, duh, we can't afford to. <laughs> Well, the one I went back to was from February 2nd, which was the day of the the, uh, State of the Union. And I love this. It says, obviously, this is satire. I'm not using the White House microwave to eavesdrop on the toddler in chief scrolling his speech in crayon. I'm going, yeah, I know where she's going with this one. Uh, Yeah, that was a satirical... um, imagination what his first draft of his uh, State of the Union speech might look like. And, you know, these days a lot of people can't tell the difference between satire and news, unfortunately. So at, at the top I just put that little disclaimer, this is satire, and I'm not using the White House microwave to eavesdrop on the toddler and she's scrolling the speech in crayon just to let everyone know. Because some people will not know. So there you have it. Well, that's the bad thing. And, 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 and that's a great question for you. Being a millennial... Why do you think people have such a difficult time telling between actual news and satire? Because that's where this whole fake news came into play. Because a lot of people that read stuff on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever, they assume whatever they read is real. That's true. And I don't think it's all because of satire. I think a lot of it has to do with just actual fake news. Because there's, there's a pretty big difference. But it, it did used to be that you could recognize something as satire because it was so exaggerated yes. and you would think to yourself, well, this has to be satire, this can't be real. And yet in the last few years, I think as we've seen with the 2016 election, so many outlandish have happened that it's just it's become hard to tell what is so ridiculous that it must have been exaggerated. So that doesn't help at all. And it's interesting for me because as someone who's trained as a journalist, you know, I learned in school how to find things that were, you know, like a legitimate source for a story, right? And and I learned to look at things and say, okay, you know, this is from Breitbart. There, that's not a, a really good source for facts. And to find actual facts and not just, you know, people's opinions on things. But a lot of people, they don't have that class if you don't study journalism. Um, and I think it would be good. I mean, maybe we do need a class that everyone takes in school where they learn how to figure out if they're reading an opinion piece to, you know, look at facts and figure out where the source is and if that's a legitimate source um, or if it's, you know, just somebody else's opinion on something. Um, and I, I, I think that's a big problem. A lot of people don't know how to do that. And then it, it does become an even bigger problem when you have a situation where, you know, politicians are doing such ridiculous and outlandish things that it, it really is hard to tell if something is exaggerated or not. I mean, I, I look at things every day and I say that has to be satire and then I'll look and I'll see right. that it's from a legitimate and oh yeah, he actually said that or he actually said that, you know? It is kind of tough today. You have uh, politicians writing they're, they're their own satire, right? So the, the question I have for you, because you mentioned your parents watching Fox News and I guess that you watch it for the entertainment value, not for the actual news source. Do you and your parents get in arguments about what they watch and what they're saying they believe is fact because they're seeing it on Fox News? Absolutely, yeah. I I don't really watch Fox News, but like I said, it's often blaring in the living room, and as I'm 
walking to the kitchen or the bathroom, I can't help but overhear it. Right. Uh, one day, I remember just, you know, walking through, and they were having some discussion about taxes, and one person was saying one thing, and another person was saying another thing, and, and then this one guy was like, you know, it doesn't really matter if we raise taxes or we lower them, because blah, 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 is going to happen anyway, and I'm just thinking, it doesn't matter, what are you all arguing about? I mean, it's just the most ridiculous argument. So yeah, we, we do have conversations, I mean, like, Dad tells me all the time things that he thinks are going to happen because we're on Fox News. Right. Uh, I was just speaking with them about this earlier. Um, yeah, the socialists are taking over our country, and you know we're all going to be communists. We're all going to be waiting in line for toilet paper and vodka. I, I've been hearing that one for thirty-five years, and it hasn't happened yet. Well, um, and interestingly, you know, for people who are worried about you know our country becoming like Russia. They're not at all concerned if Russia helps get Trump elected. Which, right. You know, kind of blows my mind. You're, you're, you're right. I, I mean, I'm almost 53 years old, and honestly, if I could stand in line for v, free vodka, I may think about it. But I get where you're, I get, I get where you're coming from. I really do because it, it is frustrating that that when I was much younger, and I mean, I'm talking about being in the 70s and 80s. We only had a handful of news stations to watch. We had ABC, CBS, and NBC. That was it. We got our news from Peter Jennings, Walter Cronkite, or Tom Brokaw. That was it. There wasn't a 24-hour news cycle seven days a week. Not until the O.J. Simpson trial did we get into that. And I honestly see that being the downfall to America's news broadcasting is whenever we were so stuck on O.J. Simpson. Because what happened was, we were all glued in front of a TV set. Did he do it or didn't he do it? And is he going to get off or is he going to be convicted? And I think now that the the 24-hour news cycle on these cable channels is a lot of people's entertainment. I mean, for some of them, it's better than football or any sporting event. That they get off watching these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think... um Watching pundits argue on a cable news channel is a lot like watching sports, right? You got the ones you're rooting for, the ones you don't like. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's like a football game. I think you're right about that. And definitely the rise of the 24-hour news cycle that we saw in the 90s, um, certainly things like the O.J. Simpson trial, I think, contributed to it. Um, but just the, the fact that they had the ability to go live, um, technologically speaking, since the 80s, that kind of enabled that. And uh, it grew through the 90s with things like the Simpson trial. And I think there are other things, too. But, yeah, and, you know, for me, even being a journalist, I've often hated 24-hour news. And and not just because, um, you know, of of the things that have gone wrong with it lately. But I feel like a lot of times they will just repeat the same things over and over and over for hours. And for me, as a viewer, that's not entertaining. I mean, usually in those stories, they can tell you everything you need to know in two minutes, and then after that, they're just repeating themselves, which to me, that's not interesting for me. But there are people who will sit there and watch it all day anyway. And, and, and like you said, they repeat it in two minutes, and then they, they're, they're waiting for the next story to break, so they keep repeating it over and over again. And it's not that they're changing yeah. facts, they're changing the way they say it, which now the intent may sound different than what it was originally, and people start interpreting it differently. And then you, you, you just start getting it. It's like being in elementary school and doing the old game, the telephone game, where you tell one kid in the beginning of the classroom something and, and wait to see what happened at the end of the classroom if the story would stay the same. And what ends up happening is the story changes so drastically from beginning to end 
that if the the final intent was never what it was meant to be. Absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, you also have another way that they pull puns is they do have plenty of time, and they have people come on and argue about issues. And, you know, on the one hand, that's good. You get to hear opposing viewpoints. But on the other hand, a lot of these people are not, you know, they're not journalists. They haven't right. looked up all their sources. They may not have real facts. They may have opinions or uh, alternative facts. And a lot of people will just sit there and believe, you know, if someone is saying something that they agree with, then all of their facts must be true. And I think that's another big problem. And and I and I I, uh, I uh, agree with that too, especially on on Fox because, and most of their pundits are young women who are attractive, which I find very interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think they just, you know, they go out and they find people who support a particular viewpoint and they don't really care if what any of those people have to say is factual or not. And um, I I actually read an article on um, all of the different major news networks on cable and which ones had the most false information. And, and Fox actually, um, I want to say it was about 40% of, you know, things said on there were not factual. I think the other networks range from, you know, 20 to 30 percent. So pretty much all of them do have people on there, you know, saying things not true. Um, And I I kind of feel like, you know, if you want to have a debate, that's great. But maybe mark it as an opinion segment so people know that, you know, they should look up things if someone says something instead of just believing that that's true just because they want to. Right. And I think that's another, a lot of people just, they want to believe things. Because, you know, they like this party or that party and they just they want to believe it. Um, and, you know, that goes back to the fake news thing. I mean, I see things on Facebook every day that I wish are true. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a headline that said, this is the end of Donald Trump's career. Hey, right. do I wish that was true? Absolutely. Right. Does that make it true? No, because no journalist is going to write a headline like that, even if they did believe it was the end of someone's career. and. You know, I think at this point, I'm, I'm not sure if anything could ever be the end of his career because I I do think he was right when he said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his supporters wouldn't care. At this, this point, I think that's true. Um, but, you know, just because you see something that you want to be true doesn't mean that it actually is true. And you have to remember that a real journalist is not going to write a headline that just assumes something like that. They're probably just going to tell you what he said or what he did and let you draw your own conclusions, right. which is what journalists are supposed to do. And, and 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 unfortunately, in 2019, because I I actually have talked to a lot of journalists. I spoke to one Monday night on this same program, and we were talking. Um, did go as in depth as you and I are going right now, but it's the way that things are being interpreted. And now with um, not only a 24-hour news cycle, but also dealing with social media, that you can put a story out there, and people don't read the story; they read the headline. Or they read the first three or four sentences that comes up in the thumbnail because they don't have time to read it. And then they make an assumption over that brief three sentence, three sentences that they read. And they assume, okay, I read it. I understand. That's where I'm getting my information from. And then when you read the whole article, it's had nothing to do with what they interpreted it as. And then they keep perpetuating this false narrative. And, and again, a lot of people do that. I go back, if I see something on there that I don't believe, I make sure I know who the source is first, and then I try to research it because I will not I will not perpetuate someone else's lie. But there's a lot of people out there yeah. that just don't care. Exactly, yeah. If it agrees with their worldview, whatever it is, 
And, you know, I, I do think people um, of both political persuasions that I've seen doing this, um, if, if they agree with it, they're just going to share it. And, you know, it, it may not be factual. So if you had the opportunity, and I don't know um, what you're making now, if someone said, we want you to come back, we want you to be a journalist again, would you consider it? Or would you just say, no, I'm staying away from it totally? You know, I do in some ways. I, I don't make very much money now. Um, like I said, I'm a freelance writer. I do a lot of um, uh, freelance work. I write a variety of things. Sometimes I interview people. Sometimes I write blog posts for people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of piecemeal. I make, you know, 20 bucks for this and 100 bucks for that. Right. So having steady income would be nice. On the other hand, I really like keeping my own schedule. Um, I've always been a very strong night owl. I've never in my life been able to force myself to change my hours and be a morning person. Okay. So having a five job was just like hell for me. Uh, and I have read some interesting studies that have found that, um, you know, people who are night owls actually tend to be more intelligent and are also better at creative work like writing. Okay. So for that reason, I really, I, I like being able to set my own schedule. Um, but, you know, if the money was good enough, yeah, I'd, I'd probably do it again. But, you know, the money's just not there in journalism unless you, you know, you do get to that national level. Right. Um, most people do not make a lot of money in journalism. Either, you know, they have... A, a spouse who works and who makes uh, most of the money or, you know, they bounce from job to job trying to get a, a better job that pays a little bit better in a bigger market. Um, but really, unless you get to a very, very big market, there's no money in it. And it's also a very high stress level uh, right now. And it's also a very thankless job too. But listening to you yes. on this side of the, on this side of the phone you 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 have you still have some passion for it because I, it sounds to me like you'd love to be able to go fix a lot of the problems that we're dealing with on a on a national level because of your understanding on how news is being perceived and how to try to educate the public on wait a minute you need to pay attention not just glance over it or get a thumbnail sketch you need to understand what they're actually talking about Oh, yeah. I mean, if I had the opportunity, which I don't, because like I said, I have no money, power, or influence, so I have zero <laughs> right. control over anything. But I have thought about things that I would like to do. Um, and one thing that I think we're very close to now being able to do technologically, what I would love to see is, you know, on all of our 24-7 news networks, if we just had some sort of, you know, fact bot that could fact check things as people are saying them and, you know, right. pop something up on the screen. They've said something that, you know, actually it wasn't 30%. It was actually only 10%. And that study was produced by so-and-so and they were paid by this person, you know, things like that, I think would be awesome. And I don't think that we're that far off from being able to do that in a technological sense. And but, it would be really great if, you know, news networks are required to do things like that, to let people know if they were in fact listening to just somebody's opinion on something or if they were getting real facts. And right. if they're going to have a debate to just, you know, that clearly labeled as like the opinion section in the paper, right? Because, you know, we've had an opinion section in papers for years and years before they even had television. And I think people were able to discern, okay, this is an opinion section. This isn't necessarily fact. This wasn't written by a journalist. This was written by someone who has an opinion that I may or may not agree with. Right. And if, you know, could label things as opinions on TV when, you know, you're talking to someone who has an opinion, that might help people to think, okay, is that a real fact? Should I look that up or should I just assume that it's true? 
Now, do you think the public, if, if one of the news outlets would do it, say CNN would do it to the president, would they believe it? Or would they think CNN is trying to skew it in another direction and basically uh, reinventing the facts to make them look good or make the president look bad? Yeah, I think there is a lot of that now. And, you know, I don't know if that's a new problem that, you know, never happened before in the past, but I think it's certainly gotten worse in the last few years or, or um, I don't know, even decades. There are certainly a lot of people today, like my parents, you know, anything they hear on CNN is fake news. <laughs> There's no convincing right. them otherwise. There was, but there's not. Yeah, it, it, it just it, it scares me to see where we're going, because I think what's going to end up happening, especially in the next election, if the president does not re- win re-election, there's going to be a portion of our population thinking everything was fake and they were out to get him and that they didn't want him to win. So they stacked the deck against him, so on and so forth, which kind of scares me, because I don't know if we're ever going to have a true uh, democracy in this country again because of how far askew we've gone already. Yeah, I think you have a good point. I mean, right now there's, you know, people who just insist that um, he can't possibly have done anything wrong. And anyone who did anything wrong on his behalf, he had no idea. And even though he surrounds himself with all the best people, they all seem to be going to jail. <laughs> yes. And nothing about concerns them at all. Like, He's still the greatest thing since sliced bread, and absolutely nothing can puncture that worldview. So, yeah, I do think you're right about that. But why do you, and that, and I'll, I'll ask you being a millennial, because you're old enough to remember his TV program, The Apprentice, and, and some of the stuff he did in New York real estate. Why do you think he does have the popularity that he does? Because, honestly, he is, he is a New Yorker. He talks like a New Yorker. He acts like a New Yorker. He's obnoxious and rude for the most part, but yet there's a the portion of population in America, in America that can identify with him, saying he's just like we are. But the man's a millionaire. How can you? How can someone who is living check to check identify with a man like that and saying he's out working for us? I ask myself that all the time, but I mean, I, I live in Arkansas. I live in the Midwest and I am surrounded by people who, yeah. who, who fully do identify with him for some reason. Um, I think part of it is, you know, he, he ran as a Republican, even though he apparently didn't, he, he wasn't always a Republican, but I imagine when he decided that, you know, hold my beer, I'm going to run for president. I imagine that, you know, one of his people did some research and said, sir, you can't win as a Democrat. So he said, okay, I'll run as a Republican then. Okay. Um, Because I honestly think that his agenda is uh, all about him. And I I don't think he really cares all that much about either party, to be honest. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of it is party politics. Arkansas is a very red state. And a lot of people here will vote for anyone with an R after their name, no matter what they've said or done. And part of it may be identifying with him on, you know, specific issues and, you know, specific attitudes that he has. Um, so there's some of that. And in some ways, I think he does speak to, you know, people who like a, a crude approach. I mean, he is rude and he probably says rude things about people that unfortunately they agree with. Right. So I, I think those are probably factors. And I think another thing is a lot of people see themselves as future millionaires. They think that they're going to get rich one day and they're going to be as successful as Donald Trump. So a lot of it may be aspirational, too. Okay. 
I mean, I, I can get that. And again, being on TV, people thought they knew who he was and everything else. It, it just amazes me, especially you being in Arkansas, who who the state of Arkansas gave us a former president who was actually a very strong Democrat in Bill Clinton. And which, again, their politics reverted in a totally different direction when Mike Huckabee became governor, which I still think is very interesting. Uh, but yeah. again, it's just it's just trying to figure out how people think that on one hand they can go in one direction and four years later they can go in one totally other direction. And yet no matter what you say to them, no matter what they are, they're always right. Well, and an interesting thing about that is that prior to the 90s, they didn't really have red states and blue states. Right. Um, And Arkansas wasn't really a red state in the 90s when Bill Clinton was elected. And because of things like gerrymandering, we've had a lot more of states becoming more polarized um, and a lot more either red states or blue states that we didn't always have in the past. Um, A lot of people don't realize that, you know, states like Arkansas weren't always a red state. Um, that's, you know, if you look at, uh, states that went red or blue, you know, 50 years ago or even 30 years ago, things would look very different than they typically do today, especially with states that are very strongly either red or blue. Correct. Um, so that's an interesting thing. Um, and, and I, 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 I want to tell you. Talking about the books were great, but talking about your worldview and politics has been wonderful. I really enjoy this <laughs> because it it, 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 it get, helps me understand where you're coming from, especially when you write, because now I understand that, okay, you are a millennial. You're dealing with the problems that, that a lot of people are dealing with because you are still living at home with your parents and you're realizing a lot of that is because of who was in Washington, D.C. because of the politics and the the policies that they are upholding. Do you ever see see the the, the time, because like you said, you have two degrees, both of them in your, in Mm -hmm. your mind are useless. You're probably still paying on student loans. So you're straddled with that debt. You're living at home with mom and dad. Do you ever see the time where you're actually going to be able to be out of their home? I mean, I, I used to. You know, if you'd asked me when I was 18 if I thought I would be here now, the answer would be no. Okay. But it's really cool today. And I'll, I'll give you some facts on this, and you can look these up. Um, a lot of people don't realize, if you look at how inflation has gone up versus how the minimum wage and therefore other wages have gone up. Um, basically, you see a, a little chart, and I've, you know, I've, I have this chart on one of my posts on my blog um, about the problems that millennials have. Inflation has gone up at a huge rate, much, 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 much faster than minimum wage has gone up. And if you look at those two arrows, one looks like a mountain, and the other one looks like a molehill. And that's why, you know, this is a thing that my parents and I will never agree on because they don't believe that things were harder. They believe that things were harder when they were young. But the fact is that when they were young and they had a minimum wage job or two or three minimum wage jobs, they had much more buying power than a person with one or three minimum wage jobs today. And they refuse to accept that, even though there are many, many, many facts to back that up. And I've, I've noticed that's a generational thing that a lot of people their age think that and they just refuse to accept that 
third generation made choices with who they voted for that kind of led to the situation that we have today where it is much, much harder for someone to get by on a minimum wage job, on a job that is more than minimum wage because, you know, minimum wage is just the bottom. Right. right? Even people who are making more money than minimum wage often can't afford to pay their bills on what they're making. They're working two and three jobs. So that, I think, is... Um, that, that's something that the older generation, for whatever reason, they can't wrap their head around it. They will not accept it. And part of it may be, you know, that kind of when I was your age, I walked 10 miles to school and it was with no shoes thing. That every generation does. But in this case, they're really ignoring some actual problems that do affect my generation. Right, exactly. And the other one, talking about colleges, the cost of college, if you look at that molehill that is minimum wage, and then you look at that mountain that is inflation, there's another mountain that makes the mountain look like a molehill. You know what that mountain is? That's the cost of college. That's yes. how much college degrees have become more expensive. As the ROI of getting a college degree has gone down, they have become, you know, worth less when you graduate with them. Yes. And that's another thing that no one wants to talk about because, you know, parents and teachers and our own government spends our tax dollars to put ads on TV to tell us that we should, that we should go to college so we can get a better job. There is this one ad that literally every time I see it, I want to throw the TV out the window because, you know, it shows this person working a crummy job as a cashier, and then it shows the person coming in and just, you know, buying an expensive computer like it's nothing, and they're yes. the same person. Well, getting a degree could be the difference between doing what you want to do and doing what you have to do. And that is bullshit because you go to college and you still do what you have to do. Right. And so you have all the people telling you that you should go to college and get a degree, but it's not worth it anymore. And right. I, I can kind of see where my parents were coming from because they feel like when they were young in the 70s and 80s, their financial lives would have been better had they gone to college. And you know what? They're absolutely right about that. But what they're failing to see is that that situation is not the same today. And right. I think that just they have blinders on. Can I ask you a question? How old are your yeah. parents? Uh, they are baby boomers. They were old when they had me. Okay. <laughs> they, they were born in the 40s. Okay, so they're in their, they're in their 70s right now then. Late 60s, yeah. early 70s. And, and, um, they have told me repeatedly that they hate socialism. They do collect social security. <laughs> they are on Medicaid. <laughs> well, as I say, and, and, and my parents are also boomers, is my thing is, is that their thought is, and I'm going to offend a large portion of my audience right now, but I believe this, their thought is I got mine the heck with anybody else. Because it, yeah. they're not worried about anybody else behind them. They're only worried about themselves. Now, they'll deny that. But I think that's really where it's coming from because they've gone through the struggle, especially through the depression and everything else of that time, especially the older ones, the uh, the greatest generations who went through World War II and the boomers that came out after World War II and everything else and then struggled. But again, they didn't have it the way you have it because $18,000 in 1970s bought a heck of a lot more than $18,000 does in 2019. And they don't understand that. They just see the number. They don't see the buying power, like you said. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, another thing that I hear a lot is, well, you know, if you're not doing well today, you're not working hard enough. Like, you're working three jobs and you still can't make anything. Well, you're obviously just not working hard enough is another attitude I hear a lot. Right. Well... Uh, VR, can I tell you something? I really enjoyed this, and we really didn't talk a lot about the books. 
the new commercial where can they find your books at uh, my books are on amazon and uh everywhere else online that books are sold like barnes and noble and other booksellers uh sales of the chief and stupid humans are the names of the book so uh hopefully people will uh, go out and, and read them uh, like i said with sales of the chief i really wanted to uh take the opportunity to write about issues not just issues that affect my generation but right also to you know, finally live out that fantasy of having you know, the kind of debates that I wanted to have. Um, you know, like uh, there's a scene in there where um, basically every candidate is hooked up to a polygraph and there's a buzzer that goes off whenever they lie. Uh-huh. Um, which, by the way, Bernie Sanders did something the other day when he was asked what, what he would do if he got the opportunity to debate Trump. He, uh, he said, well, I'd bring a polygraph with me. And I'm like, did he read my book? Yeah, exactly. My idea? That was I wrote that book like three years ago. Um, but seriously, I would, I would love to see a debate where all the candidates are hooked up to a polygraph. Every one of them, like a buzzer that goes off in real time whenever they lie. I, I mean, come on, you, you would have everybody voting if you did that, don't I, you think? Yeah, I do, but I don't think you'd get any answers done because everybody would be lying or they'd be afraid to say anything. There would be a buzzer going off constantly. Right? Exactly. You couldn't even hear what people were saying. <laughs> exactly. Well, VR... Yeah, I, 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 and, and I, huh? Go ahead, finish. We out of time? We're almost done. Uh, and, and also, I wanted to write about, you know, the candidates having to work real jobs is another yeah. thing that we talked about a little bit earlier. So I have a lot of good themes where politicians in fancy suits go out and, and work a regular job that I think most regular people will appreciate. Well, I appreciate it. I want to have you back when the next book comes out, and um, which is going to be st- Stupid Humans or stupider humans, and then you said there, there may be a sequel to Fail to the Chief, which I hope there is because I love the book, and I appreciate you taking time tonight. And uh, again, it was, a, it was a pleasure, it was a joy, and I can't wait to do it again in the future. Great. I, I would love to be on the show again, and thank you so much for having me. And you have a great night, and we'll talk to you next time. You too. Okay, Bye. bye-bye. Uh, VR craft, stupid humans and fail to the chief, uh, as in the beginning of the program, I assumed it was a guy. I was wrong. It was a young lady, a millennial. And that was fun. It really was. Now that I'm going to get a lot of negative fan mail being sent my way, but you need to hear opinions from other people. You need to hear younger people talk, but We'll get into that more next time because it's time for me to wrap up another Hootenanny this week, and I appreciate it. As we hear the music, go ahead, Fats. Everybody, we're out of here. Have a great night. We'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Well, I'm tired and I gotta go home. I'm tired and I gotta go home.